with you. I invite you to turn them to Ephesians chapter 3. This morning we're going to be in verses 1 through 13. And so if you're using the uh, Bible there in the seat in front of you, it's going to be on page 977. Help you find it a little more quickly. 977, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. As we open this passage, we'll see that because the church is at the center of God's plan, that we can proclaim the grace of Christ with boldness. So let's just begin by by reading uh, the the full passage. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 1, the word of the Lord says this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness, and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Here in the first 13 verses of of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is, is launching into a prayer. And he, like so many of us, uh, can start his thought, can, can start this idea that we see here in verse 1. He says, for this reason, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And he doesn't pick up that thought until chapter 14. He's, uh, like so many of us that is, are prone to rabbit trails, he, he pauses and just thinks about the words that he has just uh, put there to, to paper. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Of of those who are not a part of the uh, people and nation of Israel, but are now being adopted in here. And he launches into this this passage, this 13 verses that are laying out what the church's mission and ministry, through uniquely the person of Paul, but as well as extended to us in Christ. That we see here in in this passage and even kind of working through uh, how is I I going to to present this and and preach it and and structure it uh, to convey the point that's here. I was kind of wrestling through this uh, because you you can 
really kind of take it in two different directions. The first is to, to see what is Paul's pattern of ministry, what is true of his life, the, the roles that he has been entrusted uh, to live out before the Gentiles, before the nations, as well as you see our place as the church, this wider picture of the ways that uh, God is equipping the church to, to live out its life. And not wanting to neglect one or the other, I, I thought it'd be most uh, impactful for us to, to examine both. And so beginning first with our pattern of ministry, uh, moving through all 13 verses, there are four ways, four roles, if you will, uh, that we see Paul take on the mystery of the gospel. The very first one is that our pattern of ministry as we look to the ministry of Paul is, is right here in verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. That our pattern of ministry is first and foremost as prisoners of Jesus. Notice that Paul is sitting here shifting his prayer and and turns instead to a reflection on his identity. The passage that Don was reading was uh, in Acts 21 where Paul is being arrested. That the crowds are rising up and calling for him uh, to be killed. And instead he's uh, swept away, he's beaten and then arrested. And what is the the cause, what is the, the call? They're coming at him for preaching to the Gentiles. It says that there were some that were proposing that, that Paul had brought the Gentiles into the temple itself just because they saw uh, one of his fellows there in the town. And so they just assumed that this is what, what Paul was doing. And so he's, he's arrested, he's brought in because he's bringing this grace to the Gentiles. And so he's, he's forced to reflect, he says, because of, of what is happening here. But notice what he, what he does not say. Paul, as he's delivering this message, as he's proclaiming here what is happening here to the Ephesians, where he has been bound and has been sentenced and is awaiting trial, he does not say, Paul, a prisoner of Caesar, or Paul, a prisoner of the Jews, or Paul, a prisoner of his circumstance. No, he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Not for Christ Jesus, not because of Jesus am I here, but a prisoner of Christ. That for Paul, the gospel, the very kingdom of God, has bound him to this purpose and identity. And as he's laying this out before the Gentiles, as he's, he's coming to them, and as Pastor Steve laid out for us last week, declaring the, the equality, the standing here between the people of God and Israel, and now those who are a part of the nations are now brought in to be of one people. The Jews and Gentiles together, those that are in Abraham and those that are apart from him, are now together as one in Christ. And he's saying that I am a prisoner of the gospel on behalf of you. So the Gentiles are sitting there and they they think the Jews hate us. They don't even want us in the the church. We're second class citizens. And Paul is saying, no, I'm, I'm in prison for you on your behalf. John Chrysostom reflects on this and he's saying that this is a very emphatic statement. He's saying that Paul is saying, not only do we not hate you, but we are imprisoned on your account. Not only do I view you as my equal, but I would suffer for you. How are we to love in the same way? 
as prisoners of Jesus, willing to suffer for our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the pattern of ministry. The second way that we see Paul identifying himself as he jumps down a little further in verse 2, he says, assuming, this is the part of his digression, right? Rabbit trail is going off. That you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul is saying that not only am I prisoner of Jesus, but also I am a steward of grace. That God has entrusted the gospel to Paul to deliver for his purposes. That is, for the purposes of God. That stewards are caretakers, not owners. That the thing that the steward is caring for, we talk about stewardship in a general sense, often financially, that we say that we are stewards of what God has given us. That's the recognition that if you have a wallet with you, if you have money in that wallet, or perhaps you don't, whatever you have is not your own, but it is God's. And so as a steward of God's resources, I am recognizing and proclaiming that this is God's, that I am God's, that he has entrusted me to care for it, to steward it well, and to go about his plans with what he has given us. That the plan of God here has been entrusted to Paul to carry out, it says right here, is for you. That the stewardship of God's grace was given to me for you. That he is a steward of God's grace for the Gentiles to be brought in to the gospel. How many of us uh, would long for that day when someone knocks on our door, uh, you open it up and with balloons and the giant check, they say, uh, Publisher's Clearing House is here and, and you're our winner. Here's lifetime supply of spam or $20,000 or whatever it might be. But to declare, here are, are the riches for us that we are giving to you. How, how silly would it be in that moment if the 100000 1 million, 3 million, whatever it might be, whatever the amount, is to assume that the person that is holding the check is therefore footing the bill. No, as in many cases, those that are able to foot the bill rarely present the check. But how many of us, as stewards of God's grace, put on grandstanding, put on our own estimation, and we are ones that are holding a check that we did not write and saying, look at me, look at me. Paul recognizes that he has not written this check. He says, I am a steward of of grace. That God is the one who has written this check. That God is the one who has commissioned and called us and that the gift of grace is far more than any check could clear. Because the gift of grace came at the cost of Christ. And so our pattern of ministry is not just those that are prisoners to Christ, but those that he has trusted to steward his grace. He has trusted us. He has written this check and given it to us and says, deliver this for me. Deliver this to the nations. Deliver this to your friends, your family, your neighbors. Deliver this to those who were far off. Why? So that they might be brought near. That we are stewards of the grace of God. Third part of our pattern of ministry is that we are servants 
of the gospel. Jumping down a little bit, Paul has already said that he is stewarding God's grace, that he is declaring what is here. And in verse 7 he says, And of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. He is a minister of the gospel, a servant of the gospel. Minister here isn't the sense of a vocational ministry. It's actually the same word uh, which we see in Acts chapter 6. Is, uh, the church is ministering, it's serving, it's declaring the riches of God, and needs come up, and so they need ministers. They need deacons. That this is that, that same word that we see here. It's not simply a vocational role, but anyone who is a, a servant or helper of the wider ministry. And so Paul is saying that I am a, a servant, I am a minister of the gospel. I am here to help. This idea of help is, is not one that's, that's foreign to us. We live in a culture of self-help. Have you ever thought about the phrase, help yourself? It's a, it's a bit oxymoronic, isn't it? That we, we would say, hey, why don't you help yourself to whatever is here? Well, if I could help myself, it, it, would it really be help? But no, we, we see that self-help is an incredibly uh, rich, rich industry, especially here in the United States. In the United States alone, last year in 2020, self-help industry generated $13.2 billion, with a B dollars. This is books, this is conferences, this is TV shows, this is the idea and proclamation that you can improve your life. And in one sense, there's something to commend about this, this longing for purpose and value and happiness that is in the human life, the human condition. That God has wired us this way to desire better for ourselves. At times we can extort this and twist it so that it's selfishness, it's oriented to our happiness, to our good, our kingdom, and miss what is here in front of us, to miss the purpose of God that he is declaring before us. And unfortunately, there are many, uh, perhaps not included in this $13.2 billion, but perhaps it goes even wider to say that there are churches here in this nation and across the world that are about self-help with Bible verses sprinkled in. That if we were to audit their services, their sermons, their teaching, that we would hear Scripture declared, that we would hear this moral excellence declared, This idea that you can improve your life, that you can find happiness in God, and that you can find satisfaction in your work. And to be sure, those aren't in themselves idols. Though they can become that when we exclude it from the wider relationship to Christ. See, if we talk about the satisfaction that we have in work, the the beauty that we see in the world, and we never deal with the sin in our hearts, we've missed it. Because the irony of self-help is that in the eternal sense, it's impossible. That we cannot help ourselves that we cannot earn our way to heaven, that we cannot restore the fractured state of our sin apart from God. 
that our, our place in this world, the sin that has broken us, went so far that its restoration cost Christ his very life. The blood of Christ was necessary for us to be restored. And so Paul is saying that I am a servant of the gospel. He is not saying that I am here to help you help yourself. Right? That's not in the Bible. God, it is not, it, we're not going to find the verse that says God helps those that helps, help themselves. That, that's, it's the opposite that's true. God helps those that cannot help themselves. That God comes to answer us and that his power here, the servant of the gospel, why, is according to the gift of God's grace in verse 7. And what's the last half of that verse? Which was given to me by the working of his power. It's not our personal aptitude. It's not our personal gifting. It is the gospel's work. Paul is looking at this this reality and he's saying, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the, the least of those here. But it is the gospel's power, God's work in us, that is bringing about this change. And so our pattern of ministry is to recognize that as prisoners of Christ, as stewards of grace, we are servants of the gospel. That we are are helping, we are helpers in this way, we are ministers in this way. Not to say that we can do this on our own, but instead to extend the grace of God, to extend the gospel as his tools, his servants. And that the way that we do this is in the final uh, aspect of our pattern which is that we are proclaimers of Christ. To me, though, I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. That our pattern of ministry is one which proclaims Christ. Here, the, the idea that we can often conflate is even the, the role of not just minister, but preacher. We, we so often view preacher as an office, as a, a position, a, a vocation, a job. But preacher is, is not an office. It, rather, it is an expected task of every believer. That if we are in Christ, the expectation is that we would proclaim Christ, that we would preach Christ. That doesn't mean that every one of us will stand on a stage and proclaim the the truth of Scripture, but rather to recognize that if we are in Christ, that message that we have been saved by is also our obligation to share that message with others. That means if you are sitting here and you are in Christ then you are expected to be a preacher of Christ, a proclaimer of Christ. It's not about if we are professional Christians or not. Paul is saying here, he says, I am the the least of all the saints, but this grace has been given to me to proclaim this. It's not Paul's prominence that brings him to proclaim Christ. It's his identity in Christ. If you are in Christ, the expectation is to proclaim him, is to have a proper humility. Humility, as Charles Spurgeon defines, he says that humility is to make a right estimate of one's self. It is to view here, not in the sense that Paul is is beating up on himself to say, "I'm, I'm the least of the saints. No, Paul recognizes what he came out of. 
he's least in the sense that he's further down the road. He didn't walk with Christ in his physical uh, ministry there in the three years. Rather, he, he came afterwards. He still saw the ascended Christ. He still met with the, the risen Christ. But the proclaimer of Christ is not simply for those 12 that walked beside him as his disciples. It's not simply for those that are paid to preach the gospel. It's for all of us who are in Christ. That this is our pattern of ministry, that we are prisoners of Jesus, stewards of his grace, servants of the gospel, and proclaimers of Christ. That this is the pattern that God has given us. But it also reveals our place as the church. Our place as the church is one which declares, which is, uh, these roles, but now put in the status and the recognition of what we are declaring. How God's mystery was made known to us. The mystery of revelation. Right? This is what we talked about with the kids. The idea of a, a trailer and then the movie. That this mystery of God's revelation is not a man-made ideology, but this is revealed by God himself. Across great time, across great language, across great space. God was directing his trailer for us. That he was producing this movie before us. That we would see the fullness of the mystery of Revelation. That before Christ comes onto the scene, we get blips, we get clips. We get to see the best of what's coming. At times even we see Christ himself step into the scene. But the promise is that he would come in a more lasting way. A secret previously hidden has now exploded on to the scene. It is uh, somewhat widely known uh, that I am, generally speaking, bad with secrets. Um, This is not to say uh, that I have issues with confidentiality. I'm great on that. If, If we meet in private, you can trust that 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 is secured, but uh, I struggle with what is a, a hidden knowledge for it. Typically, it's for a surprise. It's, it's a, if I'm one of the first to know, generally the problem is that I, I assume that it's already known. Uh, and so I have more than once um, announced pregnancies that were uh, not supposed to be announced yet. Um, I have uh, spoiled birthday surprises. I've uh, at one point, I, I announced uh, someone's crush in front of them. It was a bad one. Um, and, yeah, so other, other situations there. But generally, it's, it's the things that I am, I don't know their secrets. And I can point to Scripture and say, no, we, we should proclaim truth, and we should, uh, just excuses. But uh, either way, the mystery of Revelation, th- this isn't a secret that we're supposed to hold on to. God has, has already declared this. There's no last one to know. There's no person left uh, that it is meant to be a surprise to in a sense that we are hiding it back from them. Rather, in this sense, the mystery of Revelation, the work of God's purpose, this is the only time you will hear in church, be a gossip. Be one who who spreads this and shares this mystery, this revelation of God's work and kingdom and rule to anyone that will hear, to anyone that will listen. Because the mystery of this revelation is that it has been made known. It has exploded that there is reward in Christ for those who would take hold of Christ. 
verse 6, Paul explains, he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles, the nations, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Everything that Israel has in Christ, the nations have in Christ. For anyone who would call on Christ, their reward is there in Christ. That we are fellow heirs, that we are members of the same body, partakers of this promise. The unity that comes in Christ means that there are no second-class Christians. That we have more in common with the homeless beggar who is in Christ than our next-door neighbor who is far from him. That I have more in common with those that are in Christ and speak a different language than those who vote exactly like I do but are far from Christ. That this is the reality of the unity in Christ. Why? Because that Christian and I, regardless of the distance, regardless of the language, regardless of the divide, that we are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That this shifts our reality. That we are of the same body. There's no exclusion here. Can you imagine going to, uh, to, to a doctor, to a medical specialist, and, and they say, all right, great, we're going to do this procedure, we're going to do all this, and we're going to send you the, the invoice. You call up your insurance company, or, or they sent that, and they call you, and they say, I'm sorry, we only cover 50% of you. And they, they pick 50%, whether it's your right or your left or your top or your bottom, and they say, no, we only cover part of the body. How silly would it be to say, no, our, sorry, our, our insurance only covers right-sided injuries, not left-sided injuries. And yet so many of us live like this, that we are members of the same body, but yet we act like there are different benefits and perks for being on one side or the other. Not so in Christ that we are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That the hope is the same for each of us. That Christ has redeemed and placed us to declare the mystery of revelation. And that we do this as the center of God's plan preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden, in, hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God uses the church to declare his grace to the He uses the church to declare his grace to his enemies. Did you see who the audience was there? Not just that we would declare the grace of God to to the lost that are around us. Not just to, to remind ourselves of those who are in Christ of the grace that we have in God. But that he might make this known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Those that are opposing God see his grace displayed. That the enemy of God and its opposition of God 
sees the way that he uses the church. He doesn't send his his angels in to, to crush this. No, he uses the subversive kingdom. He uses what is weak in order to show his strength. And for the church, there is no substitute. Nigerian pastor theologian Yusufu Turaki says this. He says, the church may not be highly esteemed by others, but God has chosen it to display the beauty of his wisdom. It is the centerpiece of God's plan of salvation. There is no substitute for the church. That the local church is God's plan for salvation in the world. And we often reject this in several ways. One is that we choose or or decide or, or inflate this me and Jesus relationship that I, I don't need the church. Me and Jesus are, are just fine there at home. That I don't need the church. I, I can sing songs in my car. That I don't need the church that I can pray in this place. And we miss that it is the bride of Christ, the local church for which Christ has died. And through which we have access to him that we have access to Christ in that we are a part of his church, that we are a part of his plan. Another way that we can conflate this is not that me and Jesus, but instead it's a dismissal of the church and a replacement of the church. We, we have parachurch ministries. We have uh, Bible studies that are outside of the local church. And these aren't bad things in themselves. I, I'm a part of, of several uh, parachurch ministries Ohio Theological Institute is a para-church ministry. But these are bridesmaids to the bride, not the bride itself. Para-church ministries, when they exist well, exist as bridesmaids which serve the bride, which make the bride more beautiful, but never seek themselves to displace the bride. That the church is God's plan for salvation into the world. That the church is the centerpiece of his work. And that we would do well to esteem it well. Not to use it to build up our own kingdom, our own personality, our own wealth or status. Not to replace it or dismiss it because in our experience it has been hypocritical then we would see that this broken bride with her torn veil and her muddy train is the bride for which Christ died. That we are a part of that and if we're honest, often I am the tear in the veil, I am the mud in the train. And then I need you. I need those others here that are covenanting together, that are part of our church to make us look more like Christ. That our place as a church is to declare the great mystery of his revelation, not that we are perfect, but that he is making us whole. That we are members of the same body and that the church is at the center of God's plan. Finally, our our last place as the church 
is that this church is the one that holds the promise of Jesus. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not plan B, but verse 12, in whom, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Do not lose heart for what I am suffering for you. This is your glory. The promise of Jesus means that we can live with boldness as ones who have access to God. Do you live with this type of boldness? Do you recognize that you, as one who is in Christ, if you are in Christ, that you have access to God himself in Christ? To the same God who who spoke things into existence, we can come like children with skinned knees, crying out, Abba, Father translated and and trying to make it more current in a way that we would understand this is coming to God and saying daddy this is the promise of Jesus that we get to live with boldness and have access to him and that even our suffering can be for the glory of God don't be discouraged Why? Because he is working and he's doing so through you and me and through his church. Because the church is at the center of God's plan. You and I can proclaim the grace of Christ with boldness. Meaning that if you have not taken hold of that grace, don't put it off. Be restored, be brought in. Have that insurance. Why? Because you can be a member of the same body. You can be a fellow heir with Christ. You can partake of the promise that is in him. That this is the plan of God. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have declared your plan. Lord, that you have declared the fullness of the mystery of your revelation. Not, God, not that we are making this up as we go, but rather we are seeing what you have already declared and made known to us. Father, let us see and take hold and live out the reward that we have in Christ. Lord, let us not displace your church or in our hearts or our actions, but Lord, let us serve it well. Lord, let us proclaim the grace of Christ with boldness. Lord, we need you and only you. Lord, we pray these things in the saving name of Jesus Christ and the power of your Holy Spirit.